Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Bed. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you live on the 9th of November 2020. And as usual, we have a wonderful show lined up for you. A little bit of a different order, uh, but we're going to get to all three sports. Everything's got something going on, even with the baseball and NBA seasons being done. Uh, Sam, why don't you run us through what's on the docket? Yeah, we're going to go through some some news in the MLB. There are a few uh, surprising and interesting managerial hires. There was an ch- official change of ownership for the New York Mets. Uh, we are going to give you a quick update on what the plan is for the start of the next NBA season. We know the finals literally just ended, but remember, there was a long delay due to COVID. So to stay on schedule for the next season, they got to get started again soon. We're gonna give. We're gonna leave you with a few thoughts as as to what happened this week in the NFL. Crazy week in the NFL. Yeah. A better's nightmare, but uh, my bad luck came out on top in a better's nightmare weekend. Yeah, we'll we'll cover a couple of the of the big games this week. We're also gonna have Monday night football game between uh, the Patriots and the Jets. Not maybe the the most marquee Monday night football matchup this but year. But this is made for you, Sam. It's Jets night in America. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Unfortunately, Sam Darnold's not playing today, but we're going to have that game on in the background, so if anything interesting happens, we'll be sure to let you guys know. We've already both lost our first TD bets with uh, Cam Newton scoring the first touchdown. Yeah. if we have time, we're, we're, we're going to do a little fantasy football coverage, maybe give you guys, as you make your stretch run t- towards the playoffs, a couple of waiver wire pickups that we have our eyes on. And then finally, we're going to get into an awards preview. We've already had the Rookie of the Year announced, and we're going to have Manager of the Year, Cy Young, and MVP announced over the next few days. So we're going to tell you who the, the three finalists are for all these awards, who we think should win it, who we think is going to win it. So we'll get into that at the end of the episode. With that, let's jump directly into the MLB news. And at the top of the docket is <laughs> some news that has me very, very excited. And that's that the, the New York Mets have officially been sold to Steve Cohen. The MLB has approved it. Bill de Blasio, the, the mayor of New York, has approved it. Although I think he might have been assassinated if he hadn't. Uh, he begrudgingly approved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is a new day for Mets fans. My dad and I got on the phone right after it. Just tons of excitement. It, you know, after years of feeling like we have been fans of the lovable losers, of the most incompetent franchise in baseball, of a laughingstock, of a joke, we now have the richest owner in baseball by $10 billion. He's $14 billion net worth. The next big, the next richest owner, I believe, is Ted Lerner for the Washington Nationals at around $4.5 billion. Not only does he have a lot of money, but he is also a lifelong Mets fan who is not really viewing the, the, the buying of this team as purely a business enterprise, but it's sort of been his lifelong dream to, to own the Mets. Uh, Because of that, it certainly seems like he is going to be spending big money to contend, uh, especially with the sort of the window the Mets are in now where they have a lot of major league ready players who form a good, talented core. Um, There's additionally, uh, you know, there there are initial reports that in sort of the the interim after COVID, he's going to be willing to even take something like $100 million loss per year running the team. Uh, to to really run big payrolls, uh, he also has. So the- Sam, let me let me ask you something really quick because I know you could go on forever, but I'm curious. This seems like a match made in heaven, right? You got a guy who is just very obviously willing and ready and capable of spending essentially an unlimited amount of money here. You have somebody with history and heart in the team. Like we don't really see that anymore. That's more of like a European soccer thing. Like very few owners in the MLB right now are people who just like have poured their life into that team with a a few notable exceptions. Um, What are the naysayers saying? Because a, I know there's always pessimism in Queens around the Mets and B there was a lot of pushback to Steve Cohen buying this team. Remember he had made a deal for the team earlier and for some, you know, wacky reason that of course is partially 
to blame for the with the Wilpons. He was pushed out, and then somehow he comes back and buys the team. So it's been a weird saga. What is the negative end of this, if any, or why have things looked kind of weird? So I personally, you know, don't think there's much of a negative end to it. I at least don't see one. As far as many of the Mets fans I know, there's sort of pure optimism here. Now, okay. of course, of course, the Mets, you know, have had optimism before. We've yet to actually, you know, watch them play a single game with Steve Cohen as owner. We've yet to watch Steve Cohen, the team, make a single move with Steve Cohen as owner. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen. Now, some concerns we've heard is that Steve Cohen is just going to throw money around sort of unwisely, willy-nilly, in sort of like a Steinbrenner style. Um, I'd make two points. Although Steinbrenner won plenty of World Series throwing money around, so I... It's not a negative. Exactly. I'd make two points against that. One is that, you know, as long as saddling himself with, you know, big contracts doesn't prevent spending money in the future, that's fine. Right, whatever. Second of all, I think he's made a very wise decision in appointing Sandy Alderson to be team president. Uh, Sandy, of course, was the Mets general manager for uh, the better part of the decade. Uh, I think something like eight years. He then had to take a medical leave uh, due to uh, a, a fight with cancer. Um, at which point, at first there were some, you know, assistants running the team, and then of course Brody then Vagenen became the the general manager. Uh, he has been fired, and his entire core has been fired earlier this week. Sandy is now taking over as team president. I think this is a good decision for a couple reasons. One is that Sandy Alderson has a great track record of, of building proven winners. You know, of course, Billy Bean is often given the, the moniker of creating money ball, but Sandy Alderson was as big of a part of that as Billy Bean, uh, really being Billy Bean's mentor, having built the, the championship teams with the A's in the late eighties. Um, and, and what I mean, what I mean to say by that is Alderson is of course, understands analytics is open to them. Uh, the other point I want to make about Alderson is he did a tremendous job drafting for the Mets over the past, uh, over, over this decade, really building the core that they have now, you know, while being saddled by, you know, the Wilpons who are, who are really meddling owners were not giving him, who were not <laughs> giving him. an understatement. Yeah. And, and they were not giving him the financial help he needed to, to make splashes in free agency. So I, he did a tremendous job uh, building this organ, you know, the organizational talent and depth from that perspective. And I also think it's good to create some sort of stability in the transition where Sandy knows this organization in and out. He's largely responsible for building it up over the past decade. So it'll be good to have someone who's coming in who already knows sort of a lot of the players in the organization and stuff like that. Uh, But he's also older, and I think the plan will be for him to appoint a general manager under him who will sort of groom to take over in the coming years and really be the head honcho moving forward. The younger. Yeah. So, so we've talked about this and you know that I feel a little bit differently. I, you make some good points that I agree with. Um, certainly uh, his understanding of the organization, the stability going through um, and his familiarity with players within the organization. But to me, I do see a game that is just, getting younger both all the way up to the GM position and there are these younger GMs out there that are more willing to adapt and take advantage of um, you know marginal advantages that they can find in statistics or in development or in training Um, whereas some of these older guys have proven out I think to be um, a little bit slow to adapt now Where's that cutoff? I don't know. Obviously, uh, Jeff Lunau was successful at being a very adaptable owner, um, and he is older than this young breed of um, kind of a la Theo Epstein when he was at the Red Sox and like uh, the guy in San Diego right now. Um, but you got to give credit to Alderson, who has had playoff success i'm not even going to say he's won consistently at as at some other teams because he has a lot of seasons under 500 but he has been to four world series and he's won one between his tenures with the a's and the mets and 
you know, that's what the Mets want. They don't want to go to the playoffs. They want to win a World Series. So we'll we'll see how it works out. But I'm happy for you. You know, there's some newfound optimism surrounding the Mets. I really hope this doesn't happen. But in my experience, Mets optimism quickly turns into <laughs> just absolute disaster. But this could be the time that it's different. I don't know. Let's hope um, so. I mean, the, the, the buzzwords coming out are that Steve Cohen is building the East Coast Dodgers. And we saw what just happened. So. Let's go to some other leadership changes in teams. We have a bunch of managerial hirings, and let's start with just the wackiest, weirdest one of the bunch. The Chicago White Sox, one of the five or ten youngest teams in baseball with a bunch of stars such as Tim Anderson, Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, Yasmani Grandal, who, by the way, if you combine those five players, uh, four players, I'm sorry, the total number of buttons that are buttoned on their jerseys at any one point in a game is always, and I promise you this, always under 10, okay? So this is a new breed of baseball players who pimp home runs and who have a lot of swag and who aren't afraid to, to get out there and compete like this is the intense professional level sporting events that a major league game is. The White Sox the host of these young, exciting, energizing players, go out and hire Tony LaRussa to be their manager. Now, we're just talking about being old in the owner's box, but Tony LaRussa is now stepping into the managerial role at 76 years old. That is old. And he previously has had comments on how baseball players should stop being so flashy just as recently as this year when Fernando Tatis pimped that three-run home run or grand slam I don't remember in like a seven-run game I don't know if you guys remember that Tony La Russa came out and said I think it's disrespectful he has criticized Colin Kaepernick uh, and the movement that kind of sparked players making political statements all across uh, the sports world um, it doesn't align with the players they have there with so many good candidates out there. You know, maybe you don't want to go with the cheating of Alex Cora or AJ Hinch, but there were so many good candidates still out there, younger guys waiting to get a shot guys who are, are just clearly going to be managers. Um, and they went out and got Tony La Russa. to me, this is a huge swing and a miss. It's going to cost them dearly. Um, I'm wondering if you if you feel any differently. I certainly don't. And I mean, you talked about the reasons why this might be a bad fit for the culture of the White Sox, but I also think it's a bad fit as far as baseball X's and O's go. Tony LaRusso last managed a game in 2011, and even at that point, he is someone who the game had far left behind. He's he's notoriously very hesitant to give into analytics, and if he was hesitant to do that 10 years ago oh boy, has the game changed since then. He's yeah. really going to be in over his head and understanding how to manage in the, modern, in the modern game. And, you know, when, you know, we, we of course also have to note that the White Sox fired uh, Rick Lentier, <laughs> yeah, who will likely win Manager of the Year this year. Uh, he's, he's a finalist for Manager of the Year already. And, and who people didn't really have a problem with. I mean, we talked about this a little bit on the last show, and Sam said it really well. He was like, look, this seemed to be a good manager, but if you want to fire him to go out and get your guy, that makes sense. But when you said that, Sam, were you thinking of Tony La Russa? No, that's, that's not it. And, that's just um, not it. Yeah, a really head-scratching, puzzling decision uh, by the White Sox. You have to believe that their owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, was... Uh, very involved in this. He seems to be a very well. All reports. We don't have to believe it's been reported by by numerous outlets that this was Reinsdorf's guy. Yeah. Reinsdorf went out and got his guy, and it was Tony Larusa, and he is going to screw the White Sox here, um, barring some miracle. I, I don't know. There is, of course, an outcome where a guy who does have a baseball lifer experience in the game. No one's questioning that he knows the game. But maybe somehow someone gets in his ear. He's got a, a bench coach who knows what's up. Um, and he can channel his best impulses with the bench coach's knowledge or something. I, I don't see it happening, but it's possible. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, I'll, I'll still make the disclaimer that 
by and large, who your manager is doesn't really matter all that much. It's not like having a bad manager is going to prevent the White Sox from making the playoffs next year or even winning the World Series. You know, managers matter at the margins and you can overcome not having a great manager. But insofar as you're trying to push every edge that you, you want to have, I think this is as, as close to like a definitively bad managerial hire as I can ever remember. And I, I do just want to jump in. I, we need to move on from this, but I do want to jump in there and say one more thing. And that is that I agree with you 100%. And you're going to hate this because it's hard to quantify and no one's been able to quantify it uh, as of yet. But the one place where that's not true, the one place where the manager is not at the margins is in the clubhouse. If you believe that individual performance is linked to group dynamic, atmosphere, group performance, training habits, any number of things you want to say, but something about being in a clubhouse that is hard to quantify, but is tangible when you're in there, um, I think has a big effect. And if he takes that down, that's not you know, making, putting the wrong player in the wrong spot, that's decreasing the overall performance of your team and subsequently individual players on your team. Uh, It's, it's, I think it's a volatile situation that they could potentially find themselves in, but let's hope it's not. So um, with that, let's move on to some hirings that made a lot more sense to me. The Red Sox bring back Alex Cora. Sam, do you like this move? I mean, yeah, like, I mean, if, if you want to be mad about them hiring a guy who is sort of known to cheat, like, sure, be mad about it. But from a baseball perspective, he, he won the World Series for them two years ago. Right. Seems, seems exactly what you want from a modern-day manager, a guy who understands the analytics, who's not that far removed from the game, so knows how to mm-hmm. communicate these things to, to the players. Uh so yeah, I mean, I, I, of course, I, I I think it's a great move for the Red Sox, and but I also understand the perspective of people who are going to be mad about it and say, you know, I don't I don't want him to be a manager in this game, but he was punished, he served that punishment, so of course he should be allowed to to be a manager again, in my opinion. And uh, as Sam was saying that, I held my tongue, but Joe Flacco did chuck a 50-yard bomb to Brashad Perryman on a little play-action go route. Yeah. Um, Joey throwing it off his back foot on a little scramble there, too. This guy is a picture of athleticism and grace back there. It's really nice to see it in the black and green. Um, I agree with you 100%, Sam. He, you know, he did his time, so to speak. If it was my team, I'd be a little conflicted because it's an unsavory look, but from a baseball perspective... I think he was the number one hire for the Red Sox. You can argue whether he or Hinch was a better hire for any team. Um, and Hinch we'll talk about in a second, but for the Red Sox specifically, because he had been there, because he had such a well-established rapport with everybody in both the front office and on the field, he's the answer. Um, AJ Hinch on the other side of that coin goes to Detroit. And for me, Sam, I actually am a bit conflicted on this because number one, um, it, could be really good. It could be really cool. This is a guy who, you know, has gotten the most out of his players for a couple of years, cheating or not. I don't know. Um, but this is a guy who's had success. He's coached good players. He's also brought up young players and he's seen success from young players. And that's big for the Tigers right now. But on the other hand, I saw AJ Hinch with a garbage lineup in Arizona and a garbage rotation in Arizona. And then he goes to the Astros and he has a ton of success. Um, and maybe he's a changed manager, but I didn't actually see that much development in the way he did those things that are on the margins. Again, this is what we're talking about, being on the margins. But um, he was successful. His team was really good. Maybe it was him. I don't know. But now he goes to the Tigers. The Tigers are not good. And he could pull a Brad Osmus and finish in fourth or fifth place for the next three or four years and they could move on from him and it could be extremely uneventful in my mind. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've less of of an opinion on, on AJ Hinch uh, than I do on Tony LaRusa. I think than I do on Alex Cora either. The thing, the thing I find very hard to, to evaluate AJ Hinch on is that we know how involved the Astros front office was in decision-making and lineup construction and matchups for that team. So the question is, how is AJ Hinch going to perform as a manager without the crutch of this incredible forward thinking 
organizational structure that the Astros have. Um, so, so you, you know, we'll see how things work at the tight with with the Tigers. Again, I, I'm always gonna gonna advance the mantra that that especially in baseball, who your manager is doesn't matter all that much. I think I think your head coach in football is is the number one most impactful coaching position. I think NBA head coach is especially in the playoffs much 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 more important than MLB manager. That's not to say that the MLB managers don't matter. They do matter. But again, like I it's hard for me to get that worked up over decisions of who you're hiring for manager. Unless it's just some complete nonsense like like Larusa. So let me ask you um, a trivia question really quick. There's 25 seasons played as players in the big leagues between Larusa, Hinch, and Alex Cora. How many seasons above 100 WRC plus do you think there were? Huh. I'm gonna guess Cora had like three. Okay. Maybe four. I don't know much about Larusa and Hinch's career. I'm gonna guess seven total. Two total. Cora had one at one nineteen in two thousand and two. Larusa had uh one oh four. Oh, but that doesn't even count. I'm sorry, that was only in five games. So actually turns out we're looking at one in twenty-four seasons played between the bunch. Wow. Um and just goes to show kids, if you can't play, teach. You know, that's what they always say. If you can't do it, teach it. I have a much, um, I have a much more uh, charitable remembrance of Alex Cora's offensive outcome. Yeah. So let's uh, let's quickly round this out with a quick discussion of um, the Justin Turner, Turner saga. So we told you guys about this crazy thing where after the World Series, Justin Turner, after being told he had COVID, was back on the field removing his mask, kissing his wife. Um, totally weird and questionable after the MLB forced him out of the game. Well, this has concluded with an MLB investigation, and the conclusion basically is that both sides came out and said they were responsible, and no penalties were addressed. So here's the story being told. Turner was told that he had COVID, and he was told to isolate. They sent him to a physician's room in the back with his wife and his kids, Um when they won, players started calling him to come out onto the field and the security guards didn't say anything. No team personnel said anything. And he was like cautiously going like, is this cool? Can I go? Can I not? No one stopped him. His teammates kept telling him to come out. Um, and then removing the mask, he said was just dumb of him. Like, I don't know. And we don't need to, we don't need to like roast this, I guess, but, um, I don't know how I feel like it's so stupid. I feel like he should have gotten punished, but also uh, when they explain it like that, like uh, whose fault is, I guess it's Justin Turner's fault still, but like try and put yourself in that mindset and then like have your teammates who are the ones who are at risk, like ask you to come out onto the field. I don't know. I, I actually kind of think that in the end, if the story they told is true, it, it, it would have been hard to take action. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that perspective. I still think there needs to be the MLB putting their foot down and saying, we as a league need to take COVID protocols seriously. And this is just a prime example of, of something to show that. Um, yeah. And last, last you know podcast, I said, I thought there should be at least a 25-game suspension you know, even something like five or ten games, just to show that we're not we're not going to just let things like this happen because COVID's something that we're going to be living f- with for at least into the start of the next season. We'll see yeah. when vaccines happen and stuff. But it's like, you know, it's not like we finish this season and we're done with COVID. Like the MLB needs to adjust to handling COVID, and if if players aren't taking it seriously, that's the biggest risk to to the league. Right. I agree with you. Um, let's talk about the NBA really quickly. They recently have um, indicated that the season will start December 22nd, exactly two months after the typical October 22nd start date of the season. And instead of 82 games, they will be playing 72 games. I don't fully understand the math here, Sam, um, but it 
could be tough on NBA players. And I imagine we will see a small but not insignificant uptick in stress-related injuries in the NBA this year. Yeah, it's still... I, I, I'm not sure if this has been flushed out. I'm not sure if the playoffs are being moved back or if they're trying to compress the season. My impression in the NBA is that there are already not enough rest days. And because of that, you th- you see things like load management where why mm-hmm. Leonard will sit out something like 15 or 20 games a season because, you know, largely there are too many regular season games. The playoffs get decided, you know, quite fast in the season, especially among the good teams. And what matters is being healthy for the playoffs. So right. you might see this in even greater spades if, if the season is compressed. Uh, but, you know, I'll be happy to see the NBA back soon. I, I already miss it now that it's gone. And, yeah. and, and Christmas basketball, I think, is, is one of the great traditions there is. So if, uh, if we get some Christmas basketball out of this, that'll be great. Yeah, won't be mad. Um, now, around the NFL, a lot of crazy games this weekend. A lot of low-scoring games relative. Um, a lot of turnovers in games this weekend. The game uh, from the early slate that really rocked my world, Sam, was watching the Bills just take care of business. And this was this was really, you know, three storylines. One, Russ was pretty bad i think he had four turnovers um he just never looked right despite throwing some unbelievable passes like even in this game i was watching it and multiple times i was like rest of the best player in football but he played really bad on the aggregate um there, there was one pass that wasn't even completed that was almost like the greatest pass i've ever seen where he sort of just that's still that is maybe the greatest pass yeah. i've ever seen i know exactly what you're talking where about he's just he's getting pressured you know really can't see anything and just throws the ball straight up in the air to the point where it literally just drops down in the corner of the end zone. And Tyler Rocket has a really good chance to make a play. I'm not saying he should have made the play. It, would have been it hits his play. hand, though. He, yeah, yeah, it's hard play, but it hits his hand. Yeah. And he's not evading pressure. He's ducking a tackle, and the guy is still on his legs. And he's just off one back leg. The ball looks like he hit a sand wedge, you know, over a hazard. Just a huge loft, and it was crazy. But at the end of the day, he was pretty bad. On the flip side of the ball, we had uh, Josh Allen look incredible. He was running, he was passing, he was controlling the football, and he was not giving it to the Seahawks. But that brings me to the Seahawks defense, which was just atrocious. Holes all over the field, No, really no solid pass rush besides for a couple times that Jamal Adams got to the quarterback. And... Honestly, they they I don't know what they do because they can't man up. They their their quarterbacks are weak and relatively slow. They can't play zone because they have Jamal Adams who apparently can't play zone. And they can't really get to the quarterback. So, I don't know what they well, do. Although they did have something like seven sacks in this game, which is even weirder to see. Yeah, I mean, did they have seven sacks in this game? Yeah, something like that, which is like how do you have seven sacks and give out 44 points? Exactly. Although, I mean, although turnovers were very sort of relevant to those points. I mean, the Bills had some really short fields because of turnovers. Yeah. Um, no, Sam, they had five sacks. All right. Either way, a lot of sacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like... I mean, they had five sacks, but the Bills still threw for 415 yards. I guess they only ran it for 34 yards. Yeah, I mean, I, so there's I'm, something to say there. I'm certainly not trying to make the point that uh, that that the Seahawks' defense is anything but awful, uh, but just that, yeah. I mean, the Bills were impressive though, and and this was after they they pulled out a tough win against the Patriots. After their really hot start, Josh Allen had sort of come back down to earth. And this was a really impressive game to say, like, hey, it wasn't just a hot stretch. Like, mm-hmm. we're the real deal. And now they have a better record than the Hawks. They're 7-2 and two to the Hawks, 6-2. and two. The other game was the Saints game because this one was just wild. Saints-Bucks, it ended 23-34, but it wasn't really like that. Um, New Orleans just... Oh, I'm sorry. Wow, that's their fir- that's their first matchup. That's not how that game ended. 
Yeah, I, I apologize to all of our listeners at home. That's just a bit of faulty work by our research department. Um, I think this one we'll, was 38 to 3. It was 38 to 3. You got that right right there. And I'll tell you guys what. I had uh, DraftKings odds boost Breeze plus Brady more than three and a half touchdown passes. I slam it thinking this is easy money. These guys have both had only one game under two touchdowns on the season. Not great passing defenses. We're good to go. Well, I did not foresee Drew Brees grabbing all four and Tom Brady throwing up a fat goose egg with three INTs, but that is exactly how this game went. And you know who needed a big performance out of Tom Brady on his fantasy football team this week with George Kittle getting injured out for the season, Robert Woods on by, Daryl Henderson on by. Your boy really needed Tom Brady, who's really been one of the best fantasy quarterbacks in football over the last few weeks to step up for him. He did not. And now I'm hoping that Jacoby Myers can drop 40 points tonight to come back in this game. I don't see it happening. Neither um, do I. Let's talk about fantasy for a sec, though, Sam, because we're moving in here to week 10. Things are getting real. A lot of playoffs are starting soon, and there's injuries on deck. You know, I'm a guy who has Nick Chubb in two leagues, so that hurts me. And let's, let's do full di- He should be back next week. But let's do full disclosure here. <clears throat> Sam and I play in a league together. I just won my first game in that league, um, but my team is low-key pretty good. Um, Sam's middle of the pack, fighting for a playoff spot. Um, I, but I, be, I might be on track to post about the worst week in our league's history this week. But just so you guys can trust the bona fides, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in the top spot in a 14-team ESPN league, and I'm also sitting in the top spot in an 18-team Yahoo league, but that one doesn't really count. We don't need to get into that. But... Um, we're here to try and help you guys close out this stretch, okay? So you may have some injuries. You may have uh, some open spots on your roster. We're just going to throw out some guys that we're looking at that are potentially difference makers on the waiver wire this week. Um, and I want to start with a guy, let's look 35% owned and under on ESPN here. Um, and I'll start with a guy who's on my team right now, but is only 34% owned, and that's J.D. McKissick. This is not a boomer bust guy. This is a solid, you know, 9, 10 points guy. He busted out for 17 this last week against the Giants, but typically he's keeping you really safe in that 9, 10 point. So if you've got a really solid lineup, but you just had somebody go down with an injury or you just um, have a guy who was on a hot streak who's fading, J.D. McKissick is a great answer to be kind of a low-end bedrock um, on a team that is otherwise stacked out. Sam, you got anyone you like? Yeah, well, a, a big question with, with the one I'm about to say is, what is the health uh, prospects of Chris Carson moving forward? But mm-hmm. the Seahawks running backs, they're going to be a high-scoring team. DJ Dallas now has touchdowns in back-to-back weeks for the Seahawks. If, if he's still available on the waiver wire in your league, he's not in our league because the maestro Aaron picked him up. You're going to want to go get him. And, and, and on the same, the same token, another offense that's had a lot of injuries in the running back room is, is the 49ers. Tevin Coleman's hurt. Raheem Mostert's on IR. Uh, let's see. Who else is on IR? Um, uh, Tevin Coleman. Yeah, I already, Jeff Wilson's on IR as well. Jermichael Hasty uh, is another player on my team. So you guys team. know how I'm running backs. I'm stretched here in the running back position. Yeah, but you know, if you can just find, you know, you always want to be there to, to get a backup running back if the main guy goes down. You can see what Mike Davis has done for fantasy owners this year after Christian McCaffrey went down, and Christian McCaffrey actually just got hurt again. So Mike Davis owners will will be benefiting from that. I just had a couple of great weeks out of Giovanni Bernard after Joe Mixon went down, uh, yep. was on by this week. So it's so hard to find fantasy running backs. If you can find a guy that can just give you above average output for two, even three weeks, that's a big value. And the guy that that may be this week for you. Thank you, Sam. That's a perfect segue. Uh, you got to look at Duke Johnson this week, guys. It's not a sexy look, um, old Cleveland Browns running back, but 
with David Johnson going down uh, at the helm of the Texas running back core. And this isn't a sure thing. We don't know how long he's out for, but it's a, it's a lower body injury. It, it was non-contact and could be kind of suspect. Duke Johnson could end up getting the lion's share of touches in this offense. This is an offense that does run a lot of swing plays. He is a decent receiver out of the backfield. Um, so especially if you're in PPR, I think you've got to give Duke a look if you're weak in the running back spot. Um, and then let me just shout out a couple wide receivers. So Nelson Aguilar's on my team. Somehow in ESPN, he's only 14.7% owned. I mean, this is just a guy that's boom or bust. Like if you need a playmaker on your team, like he's good for a couple 14, 21, 14 point weeks for the last five. Now, of course, the other week in that five week stretch, he put up a zero. So he is boom or bust. He's going to go off and get big yardage touchdowns um, or they're not going to look at him, but he's definitely one. Tim Patrick is another guy who can really go out and get that ball. He's been on my team before. He's worth a look. Um, and then the last one on this list, uh, Scotty Miller and actually Brashard Perryman, depending on how he does tonight, are all wide receivers for you to look at. Scotty Miller is on my team. The only My only problem with him is that Antonio Brown has recently decided, signed with the Bucs. There's so many options on the Bucs that it's hard to trust him in a single week. Uh, one guy I like is someone who I'm actually playing tonight. I already mentioned that's Jacoby Myers. He's really sort of Cam's only option out there right now. Had 10 targets last week. Already has 10 points in the first half tonight. Uh, so as long as, as Kill Harry stays out and Julian Edelman is on the IR, I think a lot of targets for the Patriots are going to be going towards Jacoby Myers. I think that's a nice little pickup. All right. Well, with that, uh, we'll wrap up that fantasy football look. First time we've given you guys kind of an in-depth look, but as the season comes down to the wire, sometimes there's a lot of money on the line and you can't always just trust what Fantasy Pros spits out for you. It's good information, great place to start, but you got to come to your own conclusions. So take a look at the guys we said, see what you think. Um, if you'd like to see more of this or you want to see something else regarding fantasy football, DM us or add us on Twitter at the Alonzo bet, uh, or send us an email, good old fashioned snail mail, uh, the Alonzo bet at gmail.com. We be checking them emails. So, uh, with that, Sam, let's go into the real meat and potatoes of this episode here. Let's get down to the main course. And that is the MLB awards preview tonight. We had the first announcement of an MLB award. We were told who the American league and national league rookies of the year are. So we'll get to that in a second, but just to orient the, uh, unoriented viewer here, we also have manager of the year coming out tomorrow, Cy Young and MVP in following days. So, Let's start with the Rookie of the Year, Sam. In the American League, I don't know if this surprised anybody, but uh, we had Kyle Lewis taking the cake. Yeah, Kyle Lewis won. Really impressive season out of him. Uh, 126 WRC+, plus, hit 11 bombs in 240 play appearances. Uh, had a pretty impressive walk rate at 14%. If you want to take issue with one part of his profile, he struck out a little too much at 30%. So this is now, you know, a decent, decent, you know, sort of half season sample size of a normal half season where it's, you know, 75 plate appearances in 2019, uh, now 242 plate appearances in 2020, and now has an 125 career WRC plus. He's looking like a nice young hitter for the Mariners. Yeah, he is. And I think that when you look at the other candidates in the American League, you had Luis Robert, who had a 129 WRC plus and by all accounts played uh, tremendous. Oh, sorry, that was in the uh, I apologize. That was in the playoffs. He had a 101 WRC plus and played tremendous defense. Um, and you have Christian Javier of the Houston Astros, actually, who went out and posted a, uh, you know, almost nine K per nine, which is pretty good at 289 ERA. The FIP was high and the XFIP was extraordinarily high, if we're being honest, uh, at both the FIP and the XFIP, almost at five. Um, but he had a good season overall. You know, he catered a good sample of guys, uh, kept his walks under three. But I think the right guy got it here. Um, I don't really put Christian Javier in this argument, but between Luis Robert and Kyle Lewis, I think it's undeniable to say that Lewis was the better um, offensive player. But the question is, does Luis Robert's defense make up for 
um, the offensive output of Kyle Lewis. And so before we answer that question, do you believe the defense should be weighted equally to offense in these considerations? Well, I guess it depends what you mean in terms of weighted equally to offense. I think we should take the value, like the value that someone produces defensively, you know, equivalently to the value someone produces offensively. But typically, like the value produced defensively is not going to be as high as the value produced offensively from a runs perspective. There's a second question as to, well, how much do we want to weight sort of outlier defensive stats this year? Because as we've said many times on previous episodes of this podcast, defensive stats take a lot more time to normalize. Uh, And my inclination would be to say, no, we're not going to weight outlier defensive stats quite as much. Although I think with Robert, it was sort of a combination of the eye test and the defensive stats lining up. And also I'm a bit more willing to trust defensive stats a bit quicker now with, with outs above average out of, out of stat cast where they really don't need to rely on as much averaging as far as like zoning goes, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to like UCR and DRS. And interestingly enough, he had six outs above average this year. He had two going in and seven going to either side of him. He actually lost three outs, though, going back, which is super weird. Um, And definitely not something that I saw watching him, but that's the value of these tools is that they they can't help. But I agree with you when you make a great point about the small sample size. Um, Kyle Lewis, great story here, kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, but always slugging a little bit in the minors uh, to win rookie of the year in the national league. We had, um, I don't know if it's a first to be honest, but it is definitely something different. We had a reliever win rookie of the year, Devin Williams, who truly, truly had one of the craziest years for a reliever ever, not just for rookies. Yeah. I mean, I saw a tweet today, which compared Devin Williams' changeup basically to Adam Agavino's slider. And it's basically like identical movement if Adam Agavino was throwing as a lefty. So imagine just one of the best, like biggest moving sliders in the game, but as a changeup going away from you as a lefty or like in on your hands as a righty, it was an absolutely unhittable pitch. I think at bats ending in Devin Williams' changeup had something like an 035 average this year. It's it's a cheat code. Let's just read off his stats. And before I do, I want to mention a stat that we don't normally talk about, but his ERA plus and credit to whatever Twitter user commented this on uh, Cespedes Family Barbecue's post, because this is where I saw this originally. Devin Williams ERA plus this year was 1,375, Sam. That's so funny. That is that is just break. That's called breaking a statistic. So Devin Williams this year struck out over seventeen and a half batters per nine. That means he basically struck out two batters every inning that he pitched this season. He did walk uh, essentially three per nine. So you know every third time he was out there, he was giving up a walk. But his ERA was zero point three three. His FIP was zero point eight six, and his xFIP was one point oh nine. There was no way to look at his performance. This was not a fluke. Um, I mean, it was fluky from the perspective that the season wasn't long enough for people to figure him out a little bit. But the statistical performance here is true. um, Truly one of the most dominant 27 innings I think a reliever has maybe ever thrown. Yeah, it was really, 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 really impressive. He definitely deserved this award. He not only deserved Rookie of the Year, but he was arguably one of the best pitchers in baseball this year, mm-hmm. if not the best. Uh, mm-hmm. So congrats to Devin Williams, and I'm excited to watch him going forward. And a quick shout-out to the other two contenders here. Jake Cronenworth had a 125 WRC+. Plus. Uh, he had probably a better offensive season than Kyle Lewis, honestly, walking uh, almost 17% of the time and Kang only 21% of the time. And, um, and- Alec... As far as Jake Cronenworth goes, we, we mentioned, you know, when we've talked about him other times in this podcast, like he was actually a bit unlucky as far as, as his output went compared to his contact profile, where he yeah. had really one of the best contact profiles in the league this year, as far as expected WOBA goes. And then we have Alex Bohm, who uh, actually had a tremendous season, a 138 WRC+. Plus. Uh, he scored 24 times and drove 23 runs in, and really 
you know, he was in the 84th percentile for hard hit balls, the 86th percentile for expected batting average, and he K'd at an average rate. Um, actually, the sports writers from Milwaukee and San Diego both voted for Bohm, oddly enough. Um, but I agree that Devin Williams was deserving here. But fun to just see these young guys in a shortened season come up and make a name, and definitely not the people we would have expected. So that's always fun to see. Um, with that, let's do a quick manager of the year. Let's just wash our hands of these chumps. It's a 56 game season. They probably made the difference between one game in the regular season. Um, in the national league, we have Mattingly, uh, David Ross and Jace Tingler. Um, I think that Tingler should win it. Who do you think should win it? I agree. In the American league, we have Kevin Cash, Charlie Montoya and Rick Renteria. Uh... Cash or Renteria could win it. I think Renteria will likely win it. If you ask me who is the better manager, I'd say it's almost certainly Kevin Cash. Yep. Okay. Agree 100%. So let's go to Cy Young where things are maybe a little more interesting. Um, in the National League, we have a tremendous race between Bauer, DeGrom, and you, Darvish. Sam, do I even have to ask who you have? Well, you do because I think uh, the winner is going to be Trevor Bauer. If you ask me who I think ought to win, I wouldn't know who to answer. Uh, If you ask ask me who I think would have won if the season was a full 162 games, I think it would have been Jacob deGrom. I think he would have separated from the pack because no one can do what he does on an every-game basis. I, I mean, but also the the underlying metrics point that out. So the ERAs, DeGrom had 2.38, Darvish had 2.7, Bauer had 1.73. But the FIPS, DeGrom had 2.26, Darvish had 4.69, and Bauer had 2.88. And the no, XFIP Dar- on Darvish, Bauer... Darvish didn't have a 4.69 FIP, he had a 2.23. Oh, sorry, that was in the playoffs, of course, always in the playoffs. And always looking at that yellow line, I don't want that, Dan <laughs> Um, but you know, the underlying metrics are there. I didn't see Darvish's Darvish could have also worn it out. Bauer seemed to be outperforming his expected outcome, maybe just, um, a hair, but I hope Bauer wins it because that'll make me, you know, uh, roughly $20 richer in the betting world. I had him on a future. So, and, and I am hoping that Trevor Bauer will be a Met in the year 2021. We'll have to see about that, Sam. Um, Let's look at the American League here. We have Shane Bieber, Kenta Maeda, and Hugh Jin Ryu. Who do you have on this one? I mean, this one's easy. It's Shane Bieber. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. I mean, Shane Bieber this season was good to the tune of a 163 ERA, 207 whip, 204 XFIP. Um, he had 14.2 Ks per nine as a starter. He threw 77 innings in 12 games, which is very, very solid in today's day and age. And he walked less than two and a half guys per game. He was the best pitcher in baseball this year. Undisputedly, that is true. Uh, unfortunately for him, he sort of threw up a dud in the cup in the ALCS. Sorry, yeah, DS. Um, but you know that's that's the nature of, of the playoffs sometimes, and. You know, I how did the Indians just keep making these guys? I don't know. It's incredible. We'll have to see who comes up next year. A shout out to Kenta Maeda, who had a two seventy RA, a three FIP, and a two six three X FIP. So you know, maybe even got a bit unlucky. Um, and Hugh Jin Ryu had a two six nine three zero one three three two. You know, these guys both people talk about Hugh Jin Ryu not being a strikeout pitcher anymore. He still struck out over nine and a half batters per game. Um, and- Kenta Maeda struck out 10.8 batters per game. Um, we watched some very good pitching this season, and it was fun. How wild is, of it is it that 2-3 and three in the AL Cy Young, the Dodgers just won the World Series, and they lost 2-3 and three in the AL Cy Young this year before the, the start of the season? Yeah, that's a great point, Sam, and that's absolutely crazy. Those were the people that the Dodgers deemed expendable on their team, and they were right, and they still went on to finish one and two, uh, two and three in the AL Cy Young voting. So let's go to the National League MVP. And this is maybe the most fun one. So I think we have two 
very obvious candidates in Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. And then the third candidate, a bit controversial in Manny Machado. What do you think about Manny Machado being included on this ballot? I, I don't necessarily have a complaint with it. It's very surprising to not see Fernando Tatis Jr. included, given uh, Tatis's uh, incredible season. And, you know, maybe a month before the end of the season, you would have said he was sort of the four. There was already, like, he was going to win. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he ended up... Uh, he ended up slumping down down the stretch. Now, I mean, still ended with the same WRC plus as Mookie Betts and uh, and Manny Machado. Well, one forty nine, one thirty eight, one better than Manny Machado. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Machado had a great season. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to complain between either of them, but I think there's actually a very clear winner here. I agree, and it's Freddie Freeman, who had a 187 WRC plus and a 3.4 war at first base. Like, this dude hit the ball all year. He led his team to the NLCS. Um, I also have money on him, so let's hope Sam's right. Um, he had a great season. He's a great player, and somehow I still think he's underrated. Like, people know that he's a good player, but I don't think they understand... He's like what everybody wished Rizzo was in, in um, Chicago. He is a leader, a tremendous hitter who doesn't really slump. He has some small skids, but never really slumps um, and plays good defensive first base. I love Freddie Freeman. He's my boy. Yeah. Uh, he absolutely, and he keeps taking up another level. One of, one of my favorite, and I've, I watch Freddie Freeman play a lot because, you know, the Mets and Braves are in the same division. Watching battles between Jacob deGrom and Freddie Freeman is one of my absolute favorite things to do. Just two guys who both appreciate the craft of the game and are such, such smart players. Like, Freddie mm -hmm. Freeman's such a professional hitter. And how are the Jets going to win this fucking game? <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a professional hitter. Just so, so good. I think he's the clear the clear choice for the NL MVP. Yeah, I agree. Um, and to your point, Sam, this man has been hovering around 140 WRC plus for the last seven seasons before this season that he had 187. Um, he's been out here doing it. Uh, so let's let's hope he gets it because I do agree he's the most deserving. Now, in the American League, we have a trio of very interesting candidates. One who I don't believe belongs and two who belong but are kind of surprising. Um, the three candidates are Jose Ramirez, DJ LeMahieu, and Jose Abreu. Sam, guess the imposter. Guess the imposter? I mean, DJ, DJ LeMahieu, maybe? Like, it is DJ. I just don't think he played enough games in an already short season to really be considered for this. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he had a 177 WRC+. plus. I mean, he was really quite remarkable. Um, also, I had him on my fantasy team. And I do not understand how he had a, a 177 WRC plus. Like, uh, where were these 10 home runs and 41 runs scored? Because I never saw them during the season. <laughs> and he played in my lineup every day that he was healthy. Like, I don't believe the Fangraphs page I'm looking at. Do you show that he was an interesting case? Like, he absolute bargain that the Yankees got on him on this two-year deal, like, yeah. What do you see him getting in, in the market this year? I mean, he's, he's getting a bit older. The question is... I see... I, I honestly see him going back to the Yankees on a similar deal. I don't think any team is going to go out there and give him four at, at, a, at a comparable rate. Um, and I think the Yankees could give him three and give him the Brett Gardner treatment because he's a utility player and he's solid defensively in at least three positions. And they could just keep him around. And if he gets bad, they'll put him on the bench and he'll be a leader from the bench. I, I, it makes a lot of sense for the Yankees to keep him, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, we'll see if, if they can get him for, for that price. I mean, Do I, you think there's a team out there? I mean, LeMahieu right now is 32 years old. Do you think there's a team out there who's going to give him four years and take him till he's 36 on, a, could, on a big deal? I could see someone giving him four years, 85. Four years, 90. 
I think that'd be enough. I don't think the Yankees will give him that. Yeah, we'll see. Um, who who is your MVP? Because you said LeMahieu is the impossible. It's Jose Abreu. And I can't believe I'm saying it because he's just like a black hole with the glove. You know, he cost him five and a half defensive runs, basically. But boy, did this man hit the ball this year. Um, he slugged 19 home runs in 60 games. I mean, his WRC plus was a buck 67. Um, you know, you look at Jose Ramirez, who is a little bit better in the field and cl- and close to as good offensively. Um 17 home runs in 58 games. Uh, I don't know. I it could go to either of them. They're they're basically a toss up. Jose Abreu had a bit more power and run scoring, uh, run producing, and Jose Ramirez, you know, uses wheels. I guess just a little bit more. He swiped ten bags. Um, I don't know. I could go either way on this. I'm taking Ramirez. I mean, I think they were comparable hitters. Jose Ramirez brings more value on the base paths brings more value as a, as a defender, not because he's a fantastic defender, but just because Jose He's Bray, not a bad defender. And Jose Bray is playing a lot of DH. He's playing a lot of first base. Uh, right. So I, I'm going with Jose Ramirez. I also think in sort of in the shortened season, I'm inclined to like give the tiebreaker to a guy with like a bit more of a track record. Um, and you think Ramirez has a bigger track record than Abreu? Yeah, I think I think Jose. What? I think Jose Ramirez has a history of being an MVP level player, and Jose Abreu just not. I mean, Jose Abreu has three seasons. His lowest WRC plus is one fifteen. He has three seasons over one twenty, two seasons over one thirty, and a season of one sixty seven. Jose Ramirez, Jose Ramirez has multiple bad seasons at the start of his career. Consecutive well, I mean, seasons of 146. Like I, I do not think that Jose Ramirez has a has a more significant track record than. I Jose mean, there, there's there's never been a season where you could have argued Jose Abreu is in the running to be the MVP of the league. Two years ago, Jose Ramirez was you know very close to being the MVP behind Mookie Betts. What in 2014 when he won Rookie of the Year? I definitely think he was in the discussion. I, I don't really agree with that. He had a 167 WRC plus, and he had 36 bombs and drove in 107 runs in 2014. That's that's an MVP caliber season. But he's he's never been a, a good enough defender for that to carry him over. I mean, his peak WAR is 5.3, and it is in that season. Yeah, Jose Ramirez had an eight WAR season in 2018, six and a half in 2017. 4.7 in 2016. I mean, th- even last year, which was a down year, 3.3 war, 3.4 war this year in, in 60 games. Yeah. If you ask any team who they want to have, Jose Ramirez or Jose Abreu, they're going to tell you it's Jose Ramirez. Oh, well, that's a different question, though. You're asking for an MVP. I mean, it's also tough to say, like, what is an MVP vote? Are you voting for the player that was most valuable in all of baseball? Or are you voting for the one that was most valuable to their team that was the best player? I mean, people vote differently, but that's a whole different issue that I don't think we can get into. Yeah, right fair now. enough, fair enough. Um, but yeah, obviously, no no hate if Jose Ramirez wins this. He had a great season. I would be a little bummed to see LeMahieu win it. I just, again, think that the... Um, the plate appearances just weren't there for him, despite, you know, maybe on a per at bat basis being a little bit better eight games over uh, Jose Ramirez and uh, 10 games uh, from Jose Abreu. That's a lot in a 60 game season, you know, that's 15 ish percent. So um, yeah, I, I got to go with one of the other two guys, but we'll see how it plays out. Uh, We'll be back to you guys next week with, with the answers. Um, We'll see how our predictions went uh, and of course, you know, we'll be keeping you in the loop about the NBA, uh, NFL, a little bit of fantasy news, um, and anything that pops out from the MLB. So anything you want to uh, say to the fans before we dip out here, Sam? Uh, just that if the Jets pull out this game, they're up 20 to halftime. I just, I don't know what I'm going to do. You, you know, it's fun to root, it's, it's fun to root for your team to win, but. Jesus, I mean, we got the best quarterback prospect since Peyton Manning in the draft this year, and it's not. He's gonna he's gonna stay if the Jets have the first pick. Sam, he already telegraphed it. It's not even Sam. It's not even like I'm watching Sam Darnold ball and I can be excited about it. It's Joe Flacco. 
Have you seen him? He's so mobile. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see what happens. But uh, that's what I'm, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm leaving you guys with. All right, good to know. Well, thank you guys all for stopping by. Remember, if you want to hear about something, you want to ask us a question, or uh, you want to hear us talk about something on the pod, hit us up at Twitter, on Twitter, at the Alonzo Bet, uh, or at our email address, thealonzobet at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing from you guys, and we will certainly feature what you tell us on the show. And with that, this is the Alonzo Bet, and we have been your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. 